You teach at a university, make a good salary. You could even pass for straight if you wanted to. You live in a bubble. Nothing can touch you. My partner, my husband, was critically injured last night in the bombing. He nearly died. If I live in a bubble, it just burst. From Slightly Unbalanced, we are still queer as folk. I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Today we're talking about episode 11 of season 5, and it's called Fucking Revenge. It first aired in the U.S. on July 24th, 2005. It was written by Brad Fraser, his final Queer as Folk teleplay. He wrote eight episodes, produced 12, and was the story editor of 14 episodes. Fucking Revenge was directed by David Wellington. He directed one of our favorite episodes called Wherever That Dream May Lead You, which featured the Drag King troupe bookending all the stories. And we commented on that a couple episodes ago, too. Mm hmm. Uh, here's the synopsis of fucking revenge. Yes. You really have to like punctuate the fucking there. That's right. Uh, <laughs> 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 so I'm just reminded of a, something that happened from a long time ago in college. Did you get fucking revenge? No, it was it was actually in a, a rehearsal for a show I was working on. And the director said was trying to give people like the punctuation of the end of a line or of an action. And she said, come is where it ends. And someone in the cast said, it usually does. <laughs> <laughs> That's appropriate. Yeah, it just came flooding back to me. Uh, sorry, here's the synopsis. <laughs> here's the synopsis of fucking revenge. Everyone comes to terms with the bombing and what it means to their lives in very different ways. Brian makes an improbable swing to marriage with Justin. Ben attacks Proposition 14 supporters. Go Ben. And Drew Boyd speaks at the vigil. Melanie and Lindsay consider a new future for themselves and their children that doesn't include Pittsburgh or any of their long-term friends and fathers. And Ted continues to blame himself for Michael's injuries and seeks out a form of punishment in a bathhouse. Can't wait to talk about that one. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> this was a really long episode. It was 55 minutes long, and that's about 10 minutes longer than most episodes. And this was just chock full of thick stories for every single character including Hunter. So happy he's back. Uh, but, you know, I even, I even pointed out before we started recording that I was really surprised when you told me that it was 55 minutes long because I thought the episode really flew by for me. It was also the second highest rated of this season. The uh, highest rated was I Love You, the last one. Not even the <laughs> finale rated as high as this episode. But I found it a little overwhelming, to be honest. Mm -hmm. There were two main stories and I guess three runners. But really... Every character needed to have a check-in and an update and a little problem that could be solved by the end of this episode. Yes, and that I think that is probably where our, is going to be our main sticking point at this episode. As much as, spoiler alert, I really enjoyed the episode because I always love episodes that I love episodes of television uh, where there's some sort of big event and we look into the aftermath of the event. A lot of television series always do that, especially when they get later in the seasons. They have to have some something big happen. Uh, and so I'm always interested in watching the fallout. And you have to explain what just happened in the previous yes. episode. <laughs> exactly. So let's get started with uh, Brian's A story. Uh, Justin was more or less along for the ride on this one. So I called this mm -hmm. Brian 
and Brian and Justin. Justin just kind of had a supporting role. So we start off with uh, a funeral. And at first I was thinking, this is the desired story that I wanted. I wanted Michael to get killed. But it wasn't Michael's funeral. It was Brian's funeral. So it's like me, me, me. It's all about me. We always, yeah. And we, it's, it's so funny because we, we've discussed in numerous episodes how we're always wanting this show to take a sort of stylistic approach. I think Brandon is probably the latest example. We're like, let that be in Brian's head. Right. <laughs> and then they go and do that kind of tactic, but in a completely different way where we're like, well, no, not like that. Do it like this. Yeah, I thought it kind of cheapened Michael's thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean they and they do everything to say that it is likely Michael's funeral. Right. You know, the way Brian is coming in, he's consoling Debbie and then he's consoling Ben, like and they make a real big point of that. And we, you know, they managed to check in on almost every main character. They were saying like, "Okay, well, we very much easily narrow it down to who it could possibly be so it must be michael and then it's all plot twist it's brian looking at himself didn't we have a brian funeral before when he turned 30 yes that was i mean they did his like celebration of life as a birthday party for him turning 30 it seems like there was a third brian funeral too or maybe i'm thinking of vic did brian somehow insert himself into vic's funeral also make it about himself right because he, he made some really disparaging comments and everyone airplaned him yeah. <laughs> so we find out a little bit more about the bombing. How many people? Four dead. 67 wounded. 11 of them critical. Not something I ever expected to happen in Pittsburgh. What about Michael? I spoke to Debbie a couple of minutes ago. He's still in surgery. Any idea who did it? No. Obviously... Someone who didn't care for stop prop 14. We didn't know that really up until now, so Carl delivers that bad news. Brian then hightails it over to Justin's studio. When I was bashed, I found out that the best way to survive, to go on, is to make something. A painting, a napkin holder, it doesn't matter, just so that you can prove to yourself and to them that they didn't get you. You're still here. Well, I'm glad you are. <laughs> Brian, yeah, you're gonna get paint all over your. Doesn't matter. Didn't you hear what I said to you last night? Yes, I heard. You said you loved me. But how about marrying me? <laughs> what? Stop being ridiculous. I'm not being ridiculous. I love how Justin has a fully tricked out art studio now that's just full of work, but I had a question about that. Whatever happened to Justin having a shaky right hand and not being able to do analog work? Remember when all he could do was work on a computer? Right, because he had some nerve damage from when he was bashed. Now his studio is full of work. He must be fixed now. Right. For the convenience of this episode, we're going to go ahead and say that none of that really matters and he's able to you know, handle paint brushes again. I don't know. I was almost expecting uh, Justin's journey here to be back into that world of anger mm -hmm. because here he's seen someone make a deliberate attack on queer people. And yeah, you know, I was ready for some of that, you know, pink posse anger yeah. to come back. <laughs> and, but he throws it into all of his art. Would have been, been cool if Cody Bell was the bomber. Oh, wow. <laughs> So in what should have been the most pivotal moment of the entire series, Brian proposes 
to Justin and I, I kind of liked his awkward proposal because there's really no other way for Brian Kinney to propose to somebody. But Justin calls it out, though. He points out to Brian that he's only doing it because he's in shock and he doesn't really mean it. And I love these moments of Justin just not buying what Brian's selling. He just turns him down right then and there. So that mom, I love you moment didn't go too far. Right. I love it when the series makes Justin one of the most intuitive characters. He's the most keen. He's the most savvy. Like, I love that, especially because he is the youngest one. And then they do stupid shit like the way he's acting with <laughs> with Jennifer dating again. Oh, right, right. Yeah, he's very wise in some respects, but then a total child in others. Yeah. So Ted's uh, meeting with a contractor at Babylon, and something I bumped on here is that uh, there's a bomb that goes off that kills four people and injures 63, and it only did 100 grand worth of damage, and the building's fine. <laughs> yeah, everything was like superficial damage. It was like either right. that was just a really shitty bomb that still managed to kill four people and injure a lot more. But yeah, uh, but it's going to be very easy to repair everything. Like, I understand it's the early 2000s, but some of that equipment had to have been expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I would say some of the structure has to be questioned. Right. Because, <laughs> I mean, it, it was bombed. Like, <laughs> right. It killed four people. We saw them. Yeah, something. Uh, I don't know about this contractor. I know it was maybe that was just one of the bids and he was the cheapest. Well, Brian decides he's not going to reopen the club. Contractor just told me that Babylon will be back on its dancing feet in no time with enough insurance money left over to put in that new sound system. Well, that's good news. Except I've decided not to reopen the club. This stuff can go. What? Babylon. It's history. But it's your baby. It's your, your toy, your personal playground. Now it's a battleground. For once, uh, I was happy that we're given enough information to understand a Brian Kinney decision. There's a bomb. Michael has his spleen removed. A nightmare of his own funeral. And Justin turns him down. This buildup to not opening the club is actually working for me. Brian's even going to the vigil. So we're actually given enough information to understand that, oh, this is a different Brian Kinney. Well, yeah, you know, maybe not all of a sudden, but like we understand where his process is and we're understanding where his decision making is coming from. I think we see a lot of uh, we always question a lot of uh, tactics and, and decision making that the characters make because everything seems so accidental. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No one thinks things through, but here we're like, oh, we see Brian is having to do some sort of mourning and a life changing event has really actually changed his life. I did think that he kind of came off a little like stiff. It's it's like Gail Harold is playing a brand new role and he hasn't quite worn the skin of that character just yet. And so it just seemed like a little kitschy the way that Brian was acting. But I, I liked it because we had enough information to know that. There's something going on with him. I like that. Well, and I like well, I like that you're describing that he's sort of uncomfortable because he is. Everything he's possibly have known has been shifted, and now he's actually having to navigate what that means. And I like so I like that uncertainty. I like that uncomfortableness. I love this scene with Brian and Jennifer in Brian's loft. Shrink doubled my dose of Prozac. Got anything to wash it down with? What do I look like to you, Judy Garland? Brian offered oh Jack Daniels for Jennifer <laughs> to take her Prozac <laughs> to, <download> to, <laughs> to wash down her pills. And Jennifer clearly understands her audience because 
<laughs> what is her reference? What do I look like? Judy Garland? <laughs> I don't know why she would know that, but <laughs> Jay Tay never disappoints. That's right. That's what I'm calling her from now on. She's Jay Tay. Uh, so if Brian is uh, trying to sell the loft and Justin had turned him down a few scenes earlier, what exactly is he doing now? Is he going to make one of these other moves where he's like, I'm out, but he has no plan of where he's going to live next? Well, and Jennifer points out that people are trying to flee Liberty Avenue because of what happened, that he was like the fourth call she had gotten today. First of all, I love that she is, in fact, the realtor of Liberty right. Avenue. <laughs> but also, don't you feel that a lot of people's decisions to leave Liberty Avenue is rather... Abrupt? Abrupt, yeah. Yeah. And, abru- yeah. and, there, and all these people are able to somehow flee as if they are going to get buyers right away after such an attack. But also, it sort of makes you want to be that one who says, no, I'm going to stand my ground. You're not going to scare me off. You're not going to, you know, I want I would be like, I would dig my claws in even sure. more and say, no, I'm not. Absolutely. Going For what it's worth, I just want you to know that I'm sorry that I'm not going to be your mother-in-law. <sighs> there was something about the word mother-in-law that kind of like hit me weird. It. it just never occurred to me because I've always seen like Brian and Jennifer as the adults in the room and Justin being like the teenager. <laughs> and yeah, so when so she says mother in raise him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but here it's like, oh no, like th- there's that that's a, a very different dynamic than what we've always known them to be. It's a great evolution of Jennifer Taylor though from season one when she would use terms like this Brian and he's not a kid, he's a man. There's more. He's seeing someone. So who is this kid? I'll call his parents. He's not a kid. He's a man. His name is Brian Kinney. Again, love it. Love it for her. I think that's actually more... I, you know, I know you tend to bump on the the straight characters and queer as folk, but I think it's important to show that kind of evolution in a character because then maybe then there are those who could see that kind of evolution in the real world. Yeah, interestingly, I, like I, I never had a problem with Jennifer Taylor. I don't know why. It's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> she was always perfect. Yeah, we big fans. She's like Mrs. Brady, America's mom. Something yeah. about her is just very watchable. So this storyline ends in what I called the Downton Abbey ending. <laughs> uh, this episode was really working for me right up until that absurd ending. An ending that just seems so out of character for Brian Kinney that it just became completely improbable. And let me tell you why. Brian Kinney lives in a loft full of contemporary Italian furniture, mid-century modern accent pieces. He has modern art, exposed brick and timber beams, a stainless fucking steel kitchen. And then he goes and buys a Tudor Revival mansion in the Pennsylvania countryside for Justin, complete with horse stables. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he, he, he didn't, <laughs> so I, you, you, it's just so funny. I feel like the horse stables is what put you over the edge. <laughs> it did. And since when did Justin want horse stables in a country mansion anyway? I agree. It's definitely going to the extreme to make a point and <laughs> to well, show just how like serious he is. But then Justin says yes to a marriage based entirely on materialism. <laughs> Like Brian will yeah, give him yeah, anything he wants. Tracks, <laughs> kind of tracks for a young twenty-something who's about to marry someone much older than him. Uh, 
I don't know, a lot of fans probably find this scene to be cute and romantic. I just found it appalling. And it was like a sugar daddy emerges. Yes, he he is the George Schickel of season five, apparently. Well, and if you think about Justin, he at least needed to put some conditions on this because he's done that with Brian before. Brian will give him something and then Justin will say, here's what I want. Not here. He's like, yes, I'm in. Take me to the stables. Saddle out. Carry over, carry me over the threshold. That's, that's right. <laughs> he just rolls right into saying, sure, I'll marry you now that you spun this fairy tale yarn for me. By the way, let's fuck on the hardwood floors right now. Yeah, can we talk about that? Because, yeah, they put down like what looked like, you know. A sheet? Yeah. Like Drop cloth. That covers, <laughs> that, 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 yeah, that covers the furniture when there's painting happening. Right. Like, that doesn't look comfortable. And plus, that looks like real. I mean, obviously, that's real hardwood floors. So, like, I mean, you didn't have like a pillow. Yeah. <laughs> like a blanket, like a real blanket, something soft. The floor did like, serve a purpose, though, because we get to see Randy Harrison's balls. It's there like, you go. Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I, I, I think this was like some really, really terrible writing that was totally out of character for Brian. It's totally out of character for Justin to actually accept based on Brian's lavish, I don't know, what do you call it? A dowry, a gift. (laughs) It just didn't make sense in the overall story of these characters. Even though we've been fed all these things about Brian's changing, Brian's evolving, Brian's becoming a grown up. This isn't how this would play out, right? If anything, they would buy another floor in Brian's building and put Justin into that floor or something like that. It's like Tudor revival is what really got me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the architecture it did was far too much so there was uh, some interesting ending music here that played over their fuck scene and over the credits uh, the title of that song was called two rights make one wrong i was like oh that's interesting it's kind of a bit of foreshadowing of what's to come with these two characters two rights oh. make one wrong by mogwai good song <laughs> but hmm like that We'll be back with more Still Queer as Folk. We're almost done with Liberty Avenue, but this fall, we're back. Back where it all started, the original Queer as Folk, UK. I was just a shag. I knew that. Suppose I fell in love a bit. Like you do. I thought, I'll never see him again. How was I to know? Stuart Allen Jones. Six months later, he was begging me to stay. Still queer as fuck. I told you about that, did they? Slowly. Can I see you again? You can see me now. Nathan, where have you been? Piss off. Oh, now, your little friend. I could meet you tonight. God knows where I'll be tonight, you know? I could be anywhere. I could be an Ipswich. Come on, boys, give us a kiss. I'll give you a good fuck, you tight little virgin. You won't be laughing then. We're going now, Stuart. Just shut your face and drive. Can I see you, though? Oh, you'll see me, all right? You can't miss me. Say a fond goodbye to Brian, Michael, and Justin. And meet Stuart, Vince, and Nathan. Join us starting December 4th as we take on Queer as Folk UK and 10 special episodes of Still Queer as Folk. So our B story of the night is Michael in the hospital. Uh, Everybody kind of revolves in and out of Michael's uh, situation here. 
uh, something about this hospital kind of got to me. Uh, that's like the worst hospital waiting room I've ever seen. It's basically the emergency room where they're waiting. And it's like these days when somebody's in surgery, there's like special areas for the family. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely very specific waiting rooms for, uh, (laughs) surgical patients for for surgical patients. Yeah, exactly. Because also I'm trying to understand the timeline of it. Like I'm assuming because, you know, Ben is still covered in soot and Debbie is clearly still wearing what she wore. Cause I mean, she looked like she was wearing like a Teddy or something uh, <laughs> and, and the, in broad daylight of the waiting room. So it's like, Oh, they didn't, they haven't even gone home yet. They literally came from the bombed scene of Babylon to the hospital and have not left. And then assuming that Michael went into emergency surgery, he did, they've been there all, they've been there all night. So like the bombing had just happened. So from a timeline perspective, we're led to believe that he went into surgery, uh, late night, early morning. So probably three, four ish in the morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, then, uh, Ben's going to go teach a class of course. And Brian is kind of shuffling back and forth between the two. So we, we kind of see this time shift and Hunter somehow manages to get the news in Florida and find his way up to Pittsburgh that quickly. So after a while, I gave up looking at the time and just said, whatever. I just had to let go of disbelief. And that's something that I found myself doing a lot in this episode is suspending disbelief in order to try to make the story work right well okay so at least hunter's return had to have taken a couple of days yeah he was on like the next flight out (laughs) right he 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 finds he finds out about babylon from the news knows that he has to at least somehow get to pittsburgh so he does and then realizing that he can't get a hold of anyone he calls the eli and Monty. monty and yes uh and finds out that michael's in the hospital so that I get. The thing that I had a lot of trouble with uh, was the way, the fact that Ben actually went to his class. <laughs> like, I'm going to shower and I'm going to make it to my class. What? <laughs> I think people will be understanding, especially the fact that your class is full of queer people, that when an attack like that happens, I wouldn't have gone to class. <laughs> well, yeah, I had three problems with Ben going to class. Um well, actually, one wasn't a problem. Uh, I'll say I've got three notes. Uh, first, mm-hmm. uh, there was a gender nonconforming person in the class. Mm, okay, it wasn't what you're really going for back in 2005, but it kind of worked. A second, Ben is out of his fucking mind for going to teach a class after, after his husband was shredded by a bomb. And then third, this scene had a message that was immediately forgotten and never mentioned again in the episode. So it's like Ben runs away, kind of yaps for a while, then class is, is class dismissed, and everything that happened in the class is done. I believe our weapons should be reason, compassion. It's the kind of compassion they showed us last night. It's true, you can afford the enlightened way, Professor Bruckner. You teach at university, make a good salary. You can even pass for straight if you wanted to. You live in a bubble. Nothing can touch you. My partner, my husband, was critically injured last night in the bombing. He nearly died. If I live in a bubble, it just burst. Like his message of, I don't live in a bubble of white privilege. I was bombed. I'm having this problem processing it. Oh, by the way, kids, um, feel sorry for me. Class dismissed. All done. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you pointed that out because I would have loved if there was just an episode of what was going to happen in that class because there are, I mean, the, first of all, oh my God, there's a gay black man in the, in the class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Second of all, it was in the uh, it was in like the calculus lecture hall because there's like formulas on the whiteboard behind Ben. Hey, listen, I know that people tend to like swap rooms all the time. I mean, I was taking a musical theater class in what was an art history room. Like it's a thing that happens. But like the discussion that they were about to get into the discourse that was about to happen. I was like, oh, my God. Yes, let's have this conversation. And we got about 10 seconds of it. Right. Class dismissed. (laughs) The bell rings. Everybody leaves. I was like, no, <laughs> they no, had their chance. About it. Like that, that kind of classroom scene is exactly what would happen today. I wanted to back up and talk about um, that doctor's report. Dr. Ryan. We had to remove his spleen. There was also a lot of internal bleeding, as we suspected, but we managed to stop it. Will he be all right? I'm cautiously optimistic. I think he'll be fine. Uh, first of all, Michael has a, he suddenly has a different doctor. Last episode, we had Dr. Pearson. This time we have Dr. Ryan. I don't know what happened to Dr. Pearson. I guess his shift was over, but. Do you think it was Dr. Ryan Pearson? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they just no, went it was, on a first name basis? It was two separate actors. Yeah. Um, the, my big problem here is that six minutes into the episode, we're told that Michael will be just fine. So. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the dramatic. Like, yeah. <laughs> Two problems with this. Let's put him in danger. Let's get him out of danger. This has become a cliche in Queer as Folk where everything gets resolved quickly. And couldn't Michael's life have hung in the balance longer? If they're not going to kill him, at least make us think he's going to die, that he has problems. And then second, if he just had major surgery, a blood transfusion with blood that they didn't have, and he had his spleen removed, which means there's like a lot of danger right after surgery... And let's not forget that he was standing right next to a bomb. He's not ready to go home. He's not ready to be told that he's going to be fine. And granted, the doctor said, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think he'll be fine. They expect a full recovery. I want to wait and see. I want to like, he's still critical. He's in the ICU. We have to see how he does overnight or something. In the West Wing, when Josh got shot, they kept that going for like two episodes. He was like in surgery for like two episodes (laughs) total. And then they and had to deal with they the pulled up in the first seat. I mean, I loved that storyline. <sighs> then there's another part about this doctor's report that really bugged me is Debbie sends Ben away. Why don't you go, honey? Huh? Take a shower. Don't you have a class? Oh, God, no, I couldn't. What, what if he wakes up? The doctor said he's going to be sleeping most of the day. It's, there's no point in the two of us sitting here. Oh, no, you go. Get out of here. Go teach your class. It's like, excuse me, Debbie. It's like you're going to send his husband. husband? Yeah. <laughs> you want him to go like, teach a class? I get, that he, I get that he's your son. That's also his husband. So, yeah, I would have loved to have seen them kind of battle out for a few seconds. And then they both said, we'll stay. Let's support each other. She did it again, too, when she when Michael's waking up and she orders Ben to go get her some fucking soup. What happened? Some lunatic planted a fucking bomb. Let's not talk about that now. <clears throat> you just rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben's right. You've been through a lot. You just get better. That's all that matters. And we're going to be right here with you. So where in the hell is that soup you were promising me? Debbie, stop it. <laughs> Let him be with his husband, damn it. The thing about this is I don't think it was on purpose. I think this was just bad writing. Why would Debbie want to monopolize Michael and then not like make the most of that? Like It's one thing to kick him out and then have like a long talk with a person that's unconscious that didn't happen she's just like ben get the fuck out of here 
<laughs> Twice. You know, for an episode that it was as long as it was, it still felt like, yeah, we need to wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, we only have like, two episodes on, left. We, so They had to have been like, we're at 55. Like, we got to go. <laughs> Hunter had an outstanding entrance, though, when after Debbie orders Ben out of the room, uh, Ben opens the door and, oh, look, it's Hunter. Well, don't look so surprised. I thought that was I great. I loved it. Yes. So, so I had a question would, for you, though, about, yeah. about this. So he ran away to Disney World. I tried to find some kind of a metaphor in what that meant. Like, is this code that we're being told? But I'm left with the notion that, yeah, he left the house in Pittsburgh to run away to Disney World. Huh? I mean, listen, I've been to Disney World once in my life, and I was never hankering to go back. (laughs) And I don't think Hunter is the kind of person that we see who obsesses over Disney World and like the Disney products and makes that their life. I mean, there are, it's a little scary. How he many tried to explain that way, but yeah, I'm like, he's like, yeah, my mom always told me that we would go and we never did. So I figured I'd hitch down there. What? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a kind of a weird moment here too. When uh, Michael wakes up and he says that he's going to be all right now that Hunter is there. Anyway, when I saw the news about Babylon, I tried calling, but there was no answer. So I called Eli and Monty. They told me what happened. I got the first plan I could. You're going to be all right, aren't you? Now that you're here. So I guess all those previous episodes where Michael was all about, I'm moving on. He left. He made his choice. Whatever. Ben, get over it. Hunter who? I I guess that's reverse now that Michael has no spleen. So it's just like... (laughs) Why are you so happy that this kid is back that you never seem to want in your life anymore anyway? Right. Now that you got the new model of JR, you can go ahead, or you can go ahead and you can forget about Hunter. Yeah, why didn't they bring JR to see Michael either? I don't know. Right. <laughs> uh, let's talk about this vigil. I thought Drew's speech was like really good. Who wrote that speech? Because Drew is like newly out of the closet and he was very eloquent. He had a really, really outstanding vigil speech. Maybe does that come from just being the quarterback and being like a natural leader? Maybe I was kind of amazed that, you know, given what we've had in the past few episodes of how scared or how nervous Drew was to be out in public, given his outing that to then show up at the vigil and be like the main speaker at the vigil. He said they asked me to speak. I was like, who asked you to speak? (laughs) Who are you talking to? Tannis asked you? I guess. Somehow they got connected. I I was a little, mm, I'm not not following who asked you. But it was a great speech though, which is like so confusing. But it was good. And it was that sort of uplifting, you know, thing that we needed in that in that moment. And I mean, hey, props to Drew for being able to deliver that. It hits uh, all the Proposition 14 supporters like smack in the face and then Ben attacks and smacks them in the face. Emmett attacks, smacks him in the face. And then Carl covers up all the crimes. Why did you involve Carl in this? (laughs) Right. uh, Now, let's be honest. Ben did what we've all wanted to do when he pummeled that bigot. You don't know what it is to be human. He had the guy on the ground. He was kicking him in the face. It's like, Jesus. But that is, I mean. That's felony. That, that, no, that is where it becomes a primal thing. Like he was protecting his partner 
the person he loves. We hear it all the time that you you're willing to do anything for the person you love. And he was like, this guy is saying that my lover should be dead. And this is for the people that die. This is for all those people still injured. This is supposed to be ours, our thing. Like this is supposed to be our vigil. You, you know, this guy is coming onto what is basically sacred ground. Those Proposition 14 people are coming in and it's like you were about to have a very emotional group of people come down on you. So he, first of all, the biggest should not have been surprised that a guy like Ben could uh, beat his ass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because that looked like Ed Koch for all I care. And then to see that he was good. I mean, yeah, he unleashed a fury. There, there's just, there are these moments where you just you you see your rage just becomes so you get like tunnel vision and you have nothing to do but just release it all. And that's kind of what happened. And that guy got he ended up being the recipient of it. And Carl really should have arrested him for trying to kill the guy, though. But Carl's like, get out of here. <laughs> Run uh, away. He could probably say, like, well, no, he was. Just, just go. Just go. Go, go, go. So Brian and Ben end up in the car together. And Ben says that he's never been completely out of control. Oh, God, what did I just do? I nearly killed someone. Do you have something to. Uh... I'm not bleeding. Oh, God, how could I have done that? If you hadn't, I would have. It's completely out of control. I've never been completely out of control. You should try it more often. Who knows? I might like you better. No, you don't understand. What I did, it goes against everything I believe in. Everything I tell my students makes me no different than those monsters. Lies. <laughs> Except when he attacked Brian, threw him into <laughs> a locker. steroids. Right. <laughs> We've seen him exactly out of control the same way. <laughs> I thought that was very, yes, I was, I, I was I'm like, we're going to talk about that line. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. No, we see you out of control. seems like he beat somebody else up too. I just can't remember. <laughs> I just found uh, the rest of Brian and Ben's conversation. It was kind of throwaway though. I was, I was hoping for more with Michael in the hospital. These two opposite magnets in Michael's life could find common ground and from then on have like some kind of an understanding, but no, didn't get that. No, that was just kind of throwaway. All we really needed to see was the taillights of the Corvette to know what had happened. Yes. <laughs> so Hunter and Debbie have a great scene together. And again, I'm like, why would you write this kid out of the show? Good actor who can carry off the role. Great storyline. Let's get rid of him. So yeah, I never understood. There's great uh, cinematography in this cafeteria scene. There's two long shots across rows of empty tables. And that's a it was a very unqueer as folk like shot. And I loved it. I, I thought it really showed like good distance and it really isolated these two characters in a way that pulls them away from the swirl that's going on around the bombing, you know, like a very public event. But Hunter apparently only came back for one day. So when's Michael going home? I don't know. The doctor's going to talk to us later. Well, what do you think? Two days a week? What's your hurry? You got a plane to catch? You do have a plane to... What's the matter? Snow White can't make do with six dwarfs? Yes, he... Uh, why? Yeah. <laughs> He's got it like... Was it because he had like an extra pass to Disney World and so he had to head back? Well, Debbie says that Hunter came back because he misses Ben and Michael as much as they miss him. And, and maybe if he came back for this event, they might ask him to stay. But... Uh, he could come back at any time with no questions asked, right? He didn't need a reason. All he had to do was show up on the front porch. 
I don't know if Debbie was trying to convince Hunter because Hunter seemed to be under that impression that he he wasn't necessarily welcome back or that they had moved on. And she was, I guess, trying to tell him, no, that's your home. Yeah, why did he think otherwise? (laughs) Right. They told him like when he left, like come back anytime. Yeah, it's always here for you. Exactly. I guess maybe that's still some of the damage from that he carries that he's going to assume that he won't ever be welcome or like they're just saying that like they their generosity ran out. Oh, kids. I know. So uh, Michael's told that he can go home in a couple days and then Hunter asks if he can come home. Michael's, of course, saying yes. Except you fucking gave his bed away. Where's this kid going to sleep? You're going to tell me that in that giant house, they don't have an extra bedroom? I don't think they do. They have Jenny Rebecca's room. They have the master suite. And then they had Hunter's bedroom. And they gave Hunter's bed to Justin. Oh, my God. That's right. Okay. Well, <laughs> so they have a room. They have a room, at least. Or they sleep can on the floor. The, <laughs> the couch, something <laughs> to pull out. Brian and Justin fuck on the floor. You might as well sleep on the floor. Like, exactly. And they just did that on a sheet. I mean, I'm sure they've got some quilts and shit there. So this could have worked out a little bit better if it if they would have done what we suggested many episodes ago, which was to continue to preserve Hunter's bedroom. Ben was kind of trying to do that, and Michael was like, no, we're moving on. Clear all this shit out of here. <laughs> but if they would have kept the bedroom in place, that was the perfect linchpin into Hunter coming home. And we all loved Hunter, so like, yes, bring him back. Stokers, folks, season five, episode 11, fucking revenge. Stick around, got more to come. So I clocked three runners in the show, and the first was Melanie and Lindsay, and I separated them out because their story seemed to be going uh, separate from everything revolving around Michael. So they get the news uh, that Michael's going to be okay. Michael's going to be all right. They expect a full recovery. Did you hear that, sweetie? Daddy's going to be as good as new. I realized something when I woke up this morning. Oh, yeah? What's that? That I want to see your face first thing every day for the rest of my life. Melanie had the cutest cliche line, but... Aww. Yeah, it was sort of like saccharinely sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like... I- then we find out that uh, Dusty was one of the four people that were killed in the bombing. And I had a question for you about this, Matt. Mm-hmm. If you were in a bar that blew up, wouldn't you start checking in with everyone that you knew was there, you know, like immediately? Yes. Like, would you wait until the next day and be like, gee, I wonder whatever happened to so-and-so? <laughs> I mean, this is like their best friend. And they, you would have thought they had just sort of moved on. They had never been there. Like they, they hadn't been there that night that I, you would have almost thought that they had no idea that Babylon blew up. Yeah. I, I would be like on the street trying to find people. And this is 2005. So text messaging is early, but I'm not waiting around. <laughs> and, and they just never thought like, oh my God, did she get out? They were all too consumed with Michael. They could only be worried about one person at the time. I don't know what they're consumed with. I think they were consumed with getting home, right? Because in the last episode, they had that great scene together in bed with the kids. But we never really saw much of the aftermath for them because they weren't actually in the building. Yeah, there was something about the way that news was hitting Lindsay. And this is like a very specific acting note I noticed. Like the way she was telling me how 
you would have thought she got literally punched in the gut. Mm-hmm. The way that the, her breath just kind of kept leaving her body. And that's that kind of way of, of experiencing bad news that I don't think we tend to see. I think we always we tend to see like sort of hysterics, sobbing, fainting, that kind of thing. But here it's just like it was just so guttural mm-hmm. and it just made it more real for me. So I, that part, particular moment was just and the fact that she didn't have to say it. She was that Dusty was just one of the. And then you saw like all the color drain from her face. It was, I thought, just in a general act, you know, really nicely done. This sort of buttresses my notion that a major character needed to get killed. Dusty's mm-hmm. a character that we've only seen three times. So I think this story would have had a lot more teeth if it was a major character. And it was something that all the other major characters had to deal with. But I don't know, could you even describe Dusty? in great detail. You'd have to think about it. You don't really know who this character is. Something like this needed to have a body count. Because then, yeah, I think then that sort of earns the fallout of what takes us to the end of the series. Hell, kill Hunter, right? Have Hunter walk into the club. (laughs) Yes. Like something that would make us Oh my God, Hunter's here, boom. And we're like, oh my God. Like that would have been, sometimes it feels like there are shows that are just a little too afraid that that's somehow going to like, we're going to lose our audience. I was like, well, you only had two episodes left yeah, anyway. Right. So like, go out there go holding home. on like, for uh, like a continuation of the show or something yeah. like that. Melanie gave a speech uh, that in 2005 was alarmingly prescient in 2020 when we're recording this. I used to hate it when Brian would say there are two kinds of straight people in this world. The ones who hate you to your face and the ones who hate you behind your back. I knew that wasn't true. There are plenty of straight people who don't hate us. But the ones who do no longer have to do it behind our backs, they can do it in the White House, in churches, on television, in the streets. Is that the kind of place we want to live? Is that the kind of place we want to raise our kids? We asked the question of whether these episodes hold up 15 years later, and this scene of Melanie going on a diatribe about how gay, lesbian, trans, all the letters of the alphabet are under threat, even from the White House. And this was 2005. This was about Bush too. But that entire speech and that entire scene is exactly what we're in right now, 15 years later. That was a little bit jarring to hear her speech and go, fuck, we're like doing this right now. This isn't 2005 material. So this scene absolutely held up. Right. And in between that time, Marriage equality passed, and we just recently started moving towards you cannot be fired for being gay. Like, we're starting to see some of that. However, and especially in trans community, and especially against trans women of color, that we are seeing so much more violence and so many of these rights still being threatened. I don't know what else we, we have to do to prove that we belong here. And it's, yeah, I mean, it, the, you, for all the criticisms we tend to have about this show, they always drop some sort of gem like this, and it makes you just truly acknowledge what the show is trying to say. Our second runner of the night is not so much a runner as it is like, let's give Emmett some lines. Uh, so we see Emmett at the hospital. Uh, right away, we can see that things are a bit off with Emmett. We start to piece together that he's really experiencing a bit of PTSD. I have to go. Honey? I'll, I'll be at home. Call me as soon as you hear anything. Uh, he sees an explosion on TV, for example, and then has to get out of there and get home to his 
safe space with his, what was it, pudding and syrup. Mm-hmm. And I love how uh, Drew Boyd just randomly appeared. It's like he's, he just shows up where he's needed. Hotels, Debbie's house, hospital, on the streets, parks, everywhere. <laughs> he just appears yes. all the time. He just has this kind of super evolved perspective on being gay now. And there's a little bit of role reversal as he's uh, counseling Emmett about going to the vigil. This has nothing to do with being gay or straight. It's about being a human being. So how about coming with me to the vigil? Actually, I don't think so. Then we'll meet up. Actually, I'm not going. Actually, you should. It's to honor all those who were killed or injured. I know what it's for. I prefer to stay here. Where is Drew getting all this from? He's about to give a great speech at the vigil. Here he's like giving great advice to Emmett. Boy, when did you like wake up and become the poster boy for adult gay celebrity counselor? Yes, he became like gay enlightened. Which is great, but I I would, it it happened so quick. Mm -hmm. Which is great, but also like, (laughs) again, 55 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Get it going. So Carl clocks Emmett's PTSD right away. And let's not forget that they live together. So Peter McNeil is such a great actor. He's just so believable as Carl Horvath. We get this like scary backstory about Carl witnessing a double homicide as a rookie. I would have loved to have had that story like way back when, because that really sets the tone for this character. Carl just kind of leaves that with Emmett. He didn't make a meal out of it. He, he just gave him the story and trusted that Emmett would do something with that information, like get out of the house. (laughs) Hey, go and be at the vigil. I mean, it's a great story, but PTSD just doesn't work that way. Right. And yeah, and again, that's sort of like the, it's a fallout that I wish we continued to to explore because again, uh, Emmett manages to sort of just work through the episode. Yep. He's cured. Yep. Did you think it was cute when Emmett and Drew were out running together? (laughs) I thought that was so cute. (laughs) Doesn't anyone recognize Drew Boyd though out in public? (laughs) <laughs> I was kind of surprised. Like, I, I thought there would have been, I mean, has, have the tabloids truly, like, died down on Drew Boyd? Because he was able to just go out running with the man that he's been, I don't want to say loves, but, like, you know. Fucking. Fucking. <laughs> 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 like, it's no problem. <laughs> Not a camera in sight. I don't think there's any anything really worthwhile in that scene other than cuteness, but it, I liked it. But it was cute. Yeah. I'll I would do cute. that. I'll go running with a quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Tad real quick. So Tad is dodging uh, Michael and all things around Michael. I'm into this story, but it's another one where I had to suspend a little bit of disbelief to make it work. And let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. I totally get that Tad feels responsible for Michael's injuries, but those two have been close for a decade. And it's hard to believe that Ted's avoidance of him would really be a thing. Because remember back to season one, where we find that Ted had a shrine to Michael. This isn't the type of person that you just like avoid, right? It just seemed like kind of a sophomoric response to, hey, can you go get me a water? Oh, you got blown up. My fault. Well, quite honestly, I was trying to figure out why Ted was, you know, making it so much about like, I'm trying to keep the business afloat and I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that with Brian. And I had sort of forgotten like, oh, that's right. He was the one who sent Michael to the bar 
right where the bomb was. I'm glad you pointed out that he was clearly dodging the situation and not and trying to keep himself as removed from it as possible. Because at first I thought, what is going on with Ted and why doesn't he care? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and, and it started to come back to me, especially when we get to the bathhouse. I just don't know why he would have that feeling, though. It's like, yeah, OK, you sent him to get a water, but it's not your fault. Why do you think it is? Why are you making it about yourself? Well, no, but he 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 he's carrying that guilt with him. He's he and, he, and we and he discusses that with his trick, you know that he. But it's such a minor piece of guilt, though, right? He feels responsible, like that that Michael is in that situation. Michael could have been killed. Like you imagine if maybe this would have worked better if Michael had been killed. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yes, that's what it is. This would have landed a lot harder, and we would have understood Ted's guilt if Michael had been killed. But because Michael's fine, it's like, oh. Yeah, get over it, Ted. It's like you, you didn't send somebody to their death. So you don't have that level of guilt. You, you just asked him to get you a drink at the bar. I mean, sure, you'd feel a little bit awkward, but they've been close for so long that you get through that. You go to the hospital and you you just become a part of the recovery. And maybe you have a conversation down the road. But instead, Ted goes to the bathhouse instead of going to the vigil. And this looked like the scariest bathhouse in all of Pittsburgh. It looked um, like the movie Hostel. Yeah. Have you seen that shit with the looked like the movie Saw? <laughs> yeah, I mean tomato tomato. Let's be honest. But yeah, you know, you you walk in there with the chain link fence and shit like around the. I was like, what is going on? And it goes into that room just to be bottom up for it. Ugh. Oh, that's a, that's like the international like come top me position at a well, bathhouse. Yes, but like it it was less of like a mattress and more of a slab. slab. <laughs> so is Ted trying to punish himself here? Sort of like self-flagellation or something like that? Why well, what, that's how <laughs> I was seeing it. That yeah, this because also it's like, but you also just got pounded. So is it really punishment? Yeah, I mean I like I like <laughs> the scene and I thought it was stylish, but what the fuck? <laughs> I know. I was <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know what they were trying to accomplish with what he's doing. It was too like like we we're talking about. It. it was too much for this one episode, and Ted gets over it in forty eight minutes. This could have been carried on forever. Like the series could have ended with Ted carrying this guilt over what happened to Michael, mm -hmm. but instead it's put into a nice bow, and he shows up with the balloons, and all's forgiven. Yeah, and and the random guy that filled his ass was like, I didn't know I was with God. You have to get over it. Like, that was some good writing. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. But again, what the fuck? <laughs> Somehow like also, bottoming like absolves you of your sins? What? Well, also, I have never known when you're finding random tricks at a bathhouse that you know, you have a conversation afterwards. It's usually like uh, once I unload, I'm going to leave. Oh, really? I've never been to a bathhouse. Really? Uh, well, I was thrown into Steamworks at one point in Chicago. And there's thrown in. Well, there's like a, a route that you have to go to get out. So once you're thrown in and somebody blocks the door, you kind of just have to like go through and come out the exit, which I did. It's like the lobby. Well, yeah, but the exit is like right there. So it's not like you had to go through the entire. It's not like. A yeah, but if you don't know where the exit is, you're kind of like, ah, where am I? like one wrong turn. You're into the and, wet sauna. Oops, I found the glory holes. Yeah. <laughs> what? I don't know what's happening. All these dicks are in my mouth. What? I don't know. What happened? Wow. Hunter, what thing. are you doing here? <laughs> and there's Ted in the other room just getting nailed. It's like, whoops. Right. Has that whole like deli number counter above it. <laughs> now serving. 
All right, let's talk about our tops and bottoms for this episode. What was your top, Matt? Uh, I had a couple. Uh, Hunter returning, because I love to see Hunter. Uh, Ben pummeling that fucker. I was like, if there's going to be a moment where I can finally kind of see that fantasy realized, I'm glad I was in that moment because I felt it. I felt it. Like, that was was gay rights happening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so my top was, uh, I just have to say how uncanny Melanie's speech was when taken in a 2020 context. This is a bit of a cheater of a top because there's no way that Cohen and Littman could have predicted 2020. Nobody could have. But this really hit me hard when they were speaking in 2005 with foreshadowing of what we're living in now. And I thought that was a really, really meaningful way for the show to remain relevant. What was your bottom? Okay, so as many of the critiques that you had on the on the the episode, I actually really enjoyed it. So I was actually hard pressed to find a very clear bottom, other than you know Ted bottoming. <laughs> so if pressed, I would say it was that way that everyone shot back to normal. You know, Brian going back to the office, Ted going and trying to fix Babylon, Ben going to his class to teach. Uh, it's sort of just that, like, oh, no, hold on, like, we all need to take in what just happened and maybe, like, live with that for a couple of days. It's just, yeah, everyone's sort of running away back to normal. My bottom was, uh, I'm sure you can guess this one, uh, the Downton Abbey scene that woos Justin into marriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now hearing <laughs> all the problems you had, yes. I know that that was just window dressing, but Brian's change of lifestyle and modus operandi was just too much of a pill for me to swallow here. It's crazy to try to buy off Justin with stables and horses, and it's just as crazy to, to believe that Brian is going to say all these things to him. Yes, they've been building up to this moment throughout all of season five, but it's just outlandish and it's an improbable possibility instead of a probable possibility. I just couldn't get around it. I will be proved right on this one though. Okay. This has been episode 11 of season five, fucking revenge. Although it seems like Ben was the only one that got revenge. I guess Emmett did. Emmett clocked somebody. Yeah. Next time on Still Queer as Folk, Brian and Justin consider the realities of the biggest choice of their lives. Meanwhile, Lindsay and Melanie make the final decision about their future together, while Emmett makes his decision about his relationship with Drew Boyd. And Ted appears to have found happiness at last. Maybe it's with that guy from the bathhouse. That will be the penultimate episode of the series, and it's called Mr. Wright Never Broke a Promise. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Still Queer's Focus, a production of Slightly Unbalanced. Matt Dominguez wrote and performed the show with me tonight. New episodes every other week for season five. Still Quarters Folk was made with love in Chicago.